Let's stand and sing the doxology together. Praise God. Son and 
Lord, we bow in your presence. We are your humble servants, Lord. We thank you for uh, just being with us today, Lord, and leading us in this time of praise, this time of worship. Later, you'll lead us in opening your word and helping us understand what you have to say and your direction for our life. And Lord, we just give you praise for this uh, little one who's coming to be baptized and show us the, a picture of what it means to be buried to the old way of life and raised to a new life. We give you all praise and glory today, Lord. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Well, we do praise our God from whom all blessings flow. Uh, one line, uh, I was up there doing a solo to myself in the Baptist, up, up here singing that song just to remind that we do gather today in the power of his great name. And so we praise the Lord for that. This little girl's a, a bubbly little thing. If you've been around Sammy, you know that. And uh, she has placed her faith and trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. And we pray that the Lord will translate her bubbly personality into a, a young lady who will seek to put another flag on the hill for the Lord Jesus Christ. And we're praying for that. And so uh, this is Sammy Kinzer. Sammy, you've got some kin people here? Yes. She says they all have a twang. <laughs> I think they're from the boot hill. I know a little bit about the southern twang, right? Well, Sammy, you have, uh, we'll have your uh, kin people stand up if you're here to witness a baptism. We'll praise the Lord. All right. Before the Lord our God, Sammy, upon your profession of faith, confessing Jesus as your Lord and your desire to follow him in believer's baptism and obey the Great Commission, it's my privilege, my sister, to baptize you in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. For we are buried with Christ through baptism and we are raised to walk in newness of life. Amen. Amen. Well, our pastor, of all people, talking about twang, <laughs> just saying. Um, if you are new to us, or maybe uh, the first or second time visitor, we'd love to have you fill out one of these connection cards, and uh, please put that in the offering plate, or you can take it to the uh, connection station uh, after the service, okay? And then everybody has an opportunity to fill out a prayer request card, and we'll be faithful to pray for those. And... Uh, we just want to continue our worship today, and uh, this song is, is so, so powerful. It reminds us of the day that we were saved, the day that we were translated from darkness to light. Amen. Death was arrested, and when that happened, my life began. Love me to wait. Your love Morning grew quiet, my feet 
Amen. The King of Kings, the Lord of Lords, the Ancient of Days. For my 
Let's bow for our offering prayer. Lord God, we just come before you now and we want to give you all the praise and glory. You are the Ancient of Days. There is none above you. And that's why when we give, Lord, we realize that uh, we are giving to one whom we can't outgive, we can't ever repay. But, Lord, we're going to be obedient. We're going to do what you've told us to do, Lord, to give uh, a portion of what you bless us with back to you as offerings and tithes. And, uh, Lord, we pray that you just use it for your glory to build your kingdom, that men and women, boys and girls, will come to know Jesus because of our uh, generousness today. And we just uh, ask this in Christ's name and for his sake. Amen. We're going to sing a, a song that uh, is part of our One Banner presentation next Sunday night at Ridgecrest. I want to remind you about that and uh, want you to all come to that next Sunday night. We're going to be talking about tonight here and a little bit later, but, but uh, be sure and put that on your calendar a week from tonight. This song is a great song about heaven on the banks of the promised land.
my Savior dear, beckoned close by his sweet command. All my burdens gone, I will rest at last on the pains of the promised land. Oh, hallelujah, what a morning when I reach for that nail-scarred hand and I bend from grace to glory on the banks of the promised land and I bear all His praise to His glory on the banks of the promised land. Oh, and I bow for the promised land. Promised
Praise the Lord. I want to thank our choir. That was good. Amen. Praise the Lord. From grace to glory. What a song. 
I want to remind you that it is the grace of Jesus Christ that seeks and saves. It conceives and it calls. And it chooses and it always changes. If you've experienced the grace of God, then you've changed. God changed you. And it's all the way to glory because it's the grace of Jesus that doesn't leave you where you were. It changes you. And it sustains you. And it preserves you all the way to the end until you see Jesus face to face. And that's going to be glory. So I like that song, don't you? I begin this morning as we start our section in Ephesians chapter 6. Ephesians 5 may have been the longest time I've ever spent in one chapter. And you would agree with that, right? To begin our sermon, you don't have to turn there, but just listen. When Joshua dismissed the people, the people of Israel went each to his inheritance to take possession of the land. And the people served the Lord all the days of Joshua and all the days of the elders who outlived Joshua. You see the generations who had seen all the great work that the Lord had done for Israel. So we could at least say that that is the saving work of our God, right? The great work that the Lord had done for Israel. And Joshua, the son of Nun, the servant of the Lord, died at the age of 110. And they buried him within the boundaries of his inheritance in Timnath Hears, in the hill country of Ephraim, north of the mountain of Josh. And all that generation also were gathered to their fathers. Listen to this. And there arose another generation after them who did not know the Lord or the work that he had done for Israel. Here's what we know. We know that that generation of parents did not keep the saving activity and work of God before their children. We know that. And then 11 through 15 shows the ramifications. And the people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord and served the Baals. They abandoned the Lord, the God of their fathers who had brought them out of the land of Egypt. They went after other gods from among the gods of the peoples who were around them and bowed down to them. And they provoked the Lord to anger. They abandoned the Lord and served the Baals and the Asherah so that the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel. And he gave them over to the plunderers who plundered them. And he sold them into the hand of their surrounding enemies so they could no longer withstand their enemies. It's a reminder, of course, of a national problem there in Judges 2. But it's also a reminder of the fact that what happens on the national level certainly begins in families. So I'm going to return to that passage in a few, at the end of the sermon just to remind you of a few things that are important. But now put your attention to Ephesians chapter 6. Do you know there's never been a time in history where we may say that there was a golden age of child innocence, virtue, and obedience? I mean, can you pinpoint a time where we look back in our history, if you know anything about it, and say, man, there was a golden age where children were so innocent and had so much virtue and they obeyed their parents. Folks, I want to remind you, even the Cleavers had to deal with old Eddie Haskell, right? I love watching Andy Griffith, too, and just hear that innocence from, I don't know what, well, I don't want to, we don't want to extrapolate that out anymore of where they ended up today. But the fact of the matter is, you know, there were simple commands 
on the movie screen, and then there was obedience. So if we were to say, was there ever a time in our history that we might call it the golden age of virtue among children and innocence and obedience, I think I would probably shoot for the Reformation time because a lot of the writings from the Puritans are just so good and theological and you, you can actually buy a book called Puritan Family Theology. I would encourage you to buy that and read it. It will encourage your heart. But one of the theologians that actually lived in that era speaking about childhood obedience made this observation. Experience shows us how rare this virtue is for we do not find one among a thousand who is obedient to their parents. The human mind, even the smallest human mind, recoils from subjection and only with difficulty allows itself to be forced under the control of another. Do I have to remind you today that the problem, the root of the problem, even in children, is the problem of the heart? Although the root of the problem is the problem of the heart, there can be cultural and societal influences that make that deep-seated root bear more fruit that is not good. As a matter of fact, I want to remind you that I would suggest that regarding our culture that we're living in today, it's a greenhouse for the roots of rebellion and disrespect among young adults and children. The media pundits and many other anti-God groups add fertilizer to the roots of such bad fruit production. The Bible would tell us that attitudes of disrespect, attitudes of disobedience, and rebellion among children are evidences of at least three things. One being spiraling depravity among humanity. Second would be decaying culture. And third would be the marks of the last days. Those three things. Romans 1 would certainly tell us something about the spiraling depravity. Let me show you this. Romans chapter 1. Whereas I did not have you look over into the book of Judges because that kind of popped in my mind as I walked up here. Felt like we needed to be reminded of that. But Romans chapter 1 would be a good place for you to turn. So I'm, I'm giving you an example of how Obedience to parents, emphasized in the scripture, would show us at least three areas. It's a a sign of spiraling depravity, decaying culture, and marks of the last times. In the book of Romans, in the first chapter, Paul will do a crescendo order of God gave them over. If you're familiar with Romans 1, that's what you see. God gave them over. God gave them over. God gave them over. On the third, giving over, listen to what the word of the Lord says, beginning in verse 28. And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They are gossip, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, See it? Disobedient to parents. Foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. And I remind you of this because as you're carrying down, carrying through that particular text, which is 
the number one text in the Bible that teaches us of the spiraling depravity that's in mankind. Paul marks in the third movement of God gave them over. He puts disobedience or disobedient to parents. God gave them up and over. Young people, think about this. Right in line with haters of God. You see it? Just above that, haters of God. Just below that, disobedient to parents. Is everybody hearing that? This is showing you the downward spiral and trajectory of human depravity before God. Not only spiraling downward in depravity, but look at the marks of a decaying culture. You'll have to go over to Micah. Bible drill time. It follows Jonah, and it's just before a very large book in the Old Testament called Nahum. Did that help you? Find Nahum and turn back, right? Micah chapter 7, listen to the word of the Lord. Micah is giving out the cultural setting. The culture is on the brink of judgment from God. And he has all these societal sins of wickedness and he gets down to the end and he presents one of the crowning marks of a decaying culture and this is what he says in Micah chapter 7 beginning in verse 6 just one verse for the son treats the father with contempt the daughter rises up against her mother the daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law a man's enemies are the men of his own house so that's listed in societal understandings of a decaying culture. So the downward spiral of human depravity, disobedient to the parents. A decaying culture, disobedient to their parents. And finally, 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 1 through 5, speaks of the marks of the last days. Anybody think we're in those? Oh, the reality of seeing the nail-scarred hands. The reality today of standing before Jesus is much more precious to me than it was 25 years ago. Number one, I'm 52, right? But number two, just look at our society. Just look at the world. It yearns for God to make all things new. So, in verse 1 of chapter 3 of, the, of Paul's pastoral epistle to Timothy, here's what he says, But understand this, that in the last days... There will come times, they will, there will come times of difficulty. For people will be lovers of self, lovers of money, proud, arrogant, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, heartless, unappeasable, slanderers, without self-control, brutal, not loving good, treacherous, reckless, swollen with conceit, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, having the appearance of godliness, but denying its power. Okay. There's one through five in the verses there. What's right almost smack dab in the center of all that? Say it. Disobedient to parents. So among the most heinous sins that Paul uses to characterize the last days, right there in the middle is the sin of disobedience to parents. And I have to tell you, there's also this general disrespect for the elderly. That marks our society. True? 
it was R.J. Rushdunny who wrote in his Institutes of Biblical Law this statement. A revolutionary age breaks with the past and turns on parents with animosity and venom and it disinherits itself. <laughs> Folks, I've just explained our culture. This is what our world, our United States of America looks like societally, culturally. Okay? As we arrive at Ephesians 6, 1 through 3, we see that it is a brief section compared to the section on marriage. And some of you are like, whew, glad. Right? But it is brief. Uh, but what we have here is a healthy perspective on what God calls children to do. Are you listening, kids? And what God calls you to be. It's a healthy, biblical perspective. To me, it's a breath of fresh air. Isn't it? Children. Obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and mother, so that your days shall be long on the face of the earth. I don't know about y'all, but that sounds so much better than anything you might hear on CNN, or MSNBC, or CBS, wherever it might be. This, and this is God speaking through the Apostle Paul, giving us instruction. It's a healthy perspective. Our culture today extols rebellion and disrespect among children. This passage tells us what our Heavenly Father calls children to do and to be, along with the motivation and the power you need to do it. So we move from Christ-centered marriages to Christ-centered homes. Christ-centered homes. We might call this table chores. Table, household table rules. Or how it's fleshed out in the family. So, what does it ultimately reflect? The beauty and glory of the Lordship of Jesus Christ. Amen? To say that our family lives under the Lordship of Christ. And I don't know what you think about this, but I hope you agree with your pastor. We need to be deeply concerned about the atmosphere of our homes. More so today than ever. And I know we could say that with cliche, but the fact of the matter is we need to be concerned we need to be concerned about the attitudes of our children. We need to be concerned about the heart conditions of our children. Don't forget the starting point of this section. We don't want to miss the forest for the trees. What's the starting point of this lesson? It's Ephesians 5.18. And be not drunk with wine in which is excess or dissipation, but be filled with the Spirit of God. I remind you, to be filled with the Spirit then is followed by five participles of result. Singing. Making melody. Right? Making melody. Then the Bible would tell us to give thanks. And then, of course, we have this submitting to one another in the fear of the Lord. So you understand that the Bible is going to begin to tell you what that looks like with the husband-wife relationship. And now it's time to talk about the child to the parent. So it's very important that you see that connection that goes all the way back to 518. This is the final resulting participle of people who are filled by the Spirit is called submitting. It's a present tense ongoing reality in participial form. Submitting. Okay? This impacts wives to husbands, children to parents. And finally, when you get to verse 5, it impacts what else? Servants to their masters. So this is the work of the Spirit of God. Y'all listening? 
manifesting itself in submission. And I want to remind you, this can only be done in the power of God. It can only be done in the power of God. So this is the second section of what we might call the household codes. With 35 words that instruct our children. Can you handle that, kids? Just 35 words, right? And 15 words for parents that we'll see in a few weeks. You can easily divide it into two parts. What God has to say to children and then what God has to say to parents. Both are in the command form. Verse 1, children, obey. And then in verse 4, fathers, do not provoke. Okay? Verses 1 through 3. Are you ready? Say amen. Amen. Children, obey your parents in the Lord. For this is right. No matter what the world tells you. This is right. Honor your father and mother. This is the first commandment with a promise that it may go well with you and that you may live long in the land. And in a couple of weeks, fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. Children, in your outline, obey your parents, obey and honor your parents. This term, children, does not necessarily equate to small children. There's a flip side of this, that it could actually be adult children who may have actually remained in the care of their father for various reasons, sometimes up until the time they were 60. (laughs) It's definitely time to kick them out of the nest at that age, right? Or even until death. However... In this passage, Paul seems to be addressing children that are still in the process of being trained by parents. Wouldn't you think that would be a safe assumption of what's going on? So, but are also old enough to understand their relationship with the Lord. This is important when we hear those words, children obey your parents, in the Lord. Let's just stop there for a moment, okay? I'm not going to preach the entire outline. As a matter of fact, I'm only going to get... To the very first of the outline. You okay with that? Children, obey and honor your parents. And I want to give you four preliminary observations that I see just by looking at the word children. Are you ready? Okay. Observation number one. Paul saw the law as relevant and authoritative. Y'all believe that? I mean, where does this admonition, children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right, and honor your father and mother, so shall your days be long on the face of the earth? Well, it's the first commandment with a promise. What commandment is it? Come on, folks. Which commandment is it in the Ten Commandments? The Decalogue or the two words? Say it again. It's the fifth command given to us in the book of Exodus, chapter 20, reminding us Of the fifth commandment. Okay? Are you all tracking with me? We call that the law of God. The Decalogue. Okay? I want to remind you that we live in a day when certain even churches would say to you. Grace nullifies the law. It just totally abolishes the law. How many of you believe that? There's a good Hebrew word for that philosophy. It's called baloney. (laughs) All right? So... 
just, just look how Paul is writing this, okay? He tells the children to obey his parent, your parents. He quotes the fifth commandment. He reminds them of the fact that it's the first commandment with a promise. And that's no small thing. To live in this world we live in is kind of antinomianism. What does that mean? Anti-law sentiment. <laughs> we know this is on a bigger scale, don't we? When there's no law in the land. But we even stumble over this in church life sometimes because we, we get mistaken notions that the, great, that the grace of God nullifies the law, but folks, it doesn't. Paul quotes the fifth commandment because it's already authoritative. This is what the Lord God has said. It's his moral law exemplifying his character. And he says in the fifth commandment, obey your father and mother in the Lord. Obey your parents. So Paul is not establishing a new commandment, is he? He's actually appealing to the authority of the Old Testament and the fifth commandment. We have continuity, folks, with the very law of God that's authoritative and binding according to the Bible. Romans 7 verse 12 tells us that the law of God is holy and just and good and it reflects the character of God himself. I want to remind you that it's the law of God that works as your schoolmaster to help you know that you need Jesus. It's the law of God that points us to Christ. Without a knowledge of sin, there's, no, there's not a need for you to come to Christ. You don't sense that need. So folks, don't nullify the law. It is perfect. As a matter of fact, David would tell us that is the instruction of the Lord that converts the soul. So it is the law of God that helps you understand your need for Christ. As a matter of fact, that's the way all of our evangelistic efforts should go. Mankind has broken the law of God. And you need a Savior. So I, I, I say that to you because there's some denominational views out there that just is pie in the sky by and by. We, we, we need not ever consider the law anymore. That's just wrong thinking, wrong-headed uh, the Ten Commandments tell us about our God. And that command, Paul doesn't give a new command. Paul would tell us that the law of God is authoritative and binding. So children, on the authority of God, obey your parents. Children, obey your parents. Here's a second preliminary observation. Paul assumes as well that children would be in the assembly, the gathered church, to hear this direct address. Now... Did y'all think about that when y'all saw the word children? Well, I did. I thought about this. The letter would be sent to churches. Y'all do realize that's the way it happened. The letters would be written. They would be sent to the churches. And they would be read in the public assembly. Folks, what is Paul assuming? That children will be gathered in church with their parents. Now, you would think that I wouldn't need to say that today. But I need to say that today. Paul gives a direct address. And check this out. What is, think about the relevance. He directly addresses children. He addresses children. Children need to hear the word of God. As it's directed to them. The whole family should come together for public worship of God. And to listen to his word. In the book of Joshua we see this. The people, All the people come together to hear the word. And he's going to be reading the law. Are you all ready for this? 
That's the entire book of Deuteronomy in one setting. Some of you are like, I can't take it 20 minutes. The mind can only comprehend what the seat can endure. You know this, preacher. And by the, look, children coming together in the book of Joshua to hear in the assembly, the Hebrew would indicate that they were toddlers. Whoa, right? And all of these are coming together to hear the book of the law, which is the entire book of Deuteronomy, not in four days, five, in one setting. They're there to hear the word of the Lord. Folks, they need to sing, they need to pay attention, and they need to listen to the word of God. The Bible says that faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. Y'all believe that? It doesn't matter if you believe it or not. That's what Romans 10, 17 says. Faith comes. Stop for a moment. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. The preaching of the word of God is a means of grace unto salvation. Pastor, you use big words. I've heard this a few times. My kids do not understand. You know why? Because I don't understand them. The consistent testimony, however, that I hear around here is that you would be utterly amazed what young children can hear and understand. Since when is the standard of understanding everything as you sit under the word of God anyway? If I waited till I understood all of it before I preached it, you'd never hear a sermon. Amen? This is surely not the standard for preaching. It should not be the standard for being preached to. It's also not the standard of hearing. We are all in different places in life. And that's true of our kids. Some, someone may walk into this auditorium and they're, say, 12 years old. And they listen to one of my sermons or the preaching of the word. And they say, man, hmm, I don't know if I've ever heard quite that before. I only believe I probably got 7% of it. Well, the next time they come and sit under the word of God, they may say, you know what? I got 12% and 15 and 20. Now I'm getting 50%. Did you notice what the preacher just said? And someone else said, no, not really. Number one, you weren't paying attention. But number two, this is commonplace in every area of life that the more you're exposed to the truth, the more it gets into you. How many of y'all pull for the Cardinals? Put your hands up. Don't be shameful. Right? Royals, only Chris Dixon, only guy. He likes losing. No. <laughs> but just think about this. And, and even Kansas City football. Think about how many of you first engaged, especially you ladies. It trips me out sometimes. My wife is, the other day she surprised me at some of her terminology that she knew. But did you know um, automatically the phrase ground rule double? Do you just know that automatically because you're listening to the commentator on TV? Do you know it automatically? How about a 3-2 count? Winning run is at the plate. Some of you women are like, what in the world? <laughs> right? And then you've got numbers for, and I still don't know them. I asked Daniel in our church league softball. That you say error on one, three, four. They had to count them out to, for me because I'm like, I, don't, I just go out there and hit the ball and run. It's, well, <laughs> I try to run. But anyway. <laughs> But think about it, pass interference in football, offsides, 
Why can't we tackle in basketball like we do in football, right? The fact is, you don't fire off at the sports announcer and scream at your TV and say, don't you realize we have untrained people that are watching this game and there's no way we can ever follow along if you make it virtually impossible to know what's happening. In other words, we need seeker-sensitive broadcasters. That's what churches want, right? Seeker-sensitive preachers. <sighs> you learned the terminology that that was a sacrifice bunt that moved that runner to third. You didn't know that without submitting yourself to listen. We can do that in commonplace all over the world, but when it comes to preaching of the word, we're like, my kids can't understand, preacher. Hogwash. Keep them under the word. Keep them under the word. And there's one ingredient that you're forgetting when they hear it. It's the power of the Holy Spirit of God to which no person can ever be saved without him. The word of God will never affect change in you unless it is superintended by the Holy Spirit of God. Ezekiel preached to that valley of dead bones. Lord, I don't know if they can live. Only you know that, but I'm going to do what you told me to do. And so he opens up and he begins to prophesy to those bones. And then the Spirit of God comes in and sinews and ligaments are hooked back together. And God puts flesh on them and they stand up as a mighty army of God. Why? Because of the preached Word of God. That's the only thing that can give life. Accompanied by the Spirit of God that makes you alive. Hallelujah for the Word of God that changes us. So listen, keep your kids under the word. Don't ever let them think that you don't understand, therefore they can't understand. Shame on you. Shame on you for doing that to your children. You put them in a situation where they don't want to listen. So, the Holy Spirit of God, the Spirit of God that can work in a 30-year-old is the same Spirit of God that can work in a 3- and 4- and 5-year-old. Sitting under the word of God in worship maintains also a sense of family solidarity. Folks, I don't have to tell you this, but we live in a segmented and scattered society. What we're doing right now, for some of you, may be the only time, other than in your home, once or twice a week, where you actually come together as a family. Think about this. So sitting together with our children under the ministry of the Word has massive a massive sense of family solidarity. This is the very same family solidarity that you find in Joshua 24. If you back up to 24, that's when he gives this farewell address that you see note, uh, noted when he's 110 in Judges 2. And what does he say? Far be it from me, but I know this, as far as me and my house, we're going to serve the Lord. Choose you this day whom you're going to serve, but for me and my house, we're going to serve the Lord. That's a family that's a solidarity statement. We're committed as an entire family to the lordship of Christ Jesus. That's what we're saying. We're committed to the principles of his headship over us. Did you know also as our children sit here and participate, they not only hear things, they see things. They see if mom and dad are singing. They see if mom and dad are praying. They see if mom and dad are listening, taking notes, worshiping. Eating the bread. Should, should your kids see you partaking of the Lord's Supper? Shame on you if they don't. Jesus said, maybe if you want to, you can do this occasionally. No, it says, imperative command, do this 
as often as you do in remembrance of me. Children need to see this. Don't set your children up to be undisciplined listeners. It's also important what they see. I know this is true. You ever scribbled a note to your spouse during the sermon and said, here he is again. He's gone past my lunchtime. I mean, scribble that note. I told you before I came, you wouldn't be done by 1130. You think this impacts your children if they see it? Nowadays, you don't write. You just text one another in the service. Don't lie. You do it. Text over, send that thing through these airwaves. uh, What do you call it? Cloud? I don't know. James knows about all that stuff. Don't ever call me. Right, about that kind of stuff, but we know we're guilty of it. It teaches them that you don't have to be disciplined in worship. The most important place you could ever be sitting in your life. And yet we teach them that it's not important. We call some we call some of the inattention and the lack of discipline to sit and listen because of negative examples that we set for our children. And we know this is true. In a world where we are glutted with video stimulation. Let's take the gathered assembly and worship to our God and use it as a way to teach our kids to be listeners and thinkers. Let's assist them in the almost lost art of sitting and hearing the word of God. One of my favorite theologians was a lady. And her name was Elizabeth Elliot. And I had the privilege of sitting in seminary chapel as a 27-year-old young man, and hearing Elizabeth Elliot speak, profoundly touched, impacted, by a woman whose husband gave his life, and no, the missionary field has never been the same since Jim Elliot died. No telling how many people went to the foreign mission field, but here's what Elizabeth Elliot said. Now, don't throw tomatoes at me, because we can debate whether I would say this or not, right? But here's what Elizabeth says. And she's speaking of her own family. And I quote, she says this in a book called The Shaping of the Christian Family that she wrote before her death. In church, the whole family sat together in one pew. She's talking about her own family. My father felt strongly about this. We were a family. We were meant to stand and sit and kneel before the Lord together. And all objections, notwithstanding, And we raised many. I believed he was right. When Joshua read to the congregation what Moses commanded, everyone was there. The the women and the little ones and the strangers. Sitting still was a point of doctrine. What a statement. Judging by the ceaseless wiggling and twisting and getting up and down and traipsing off to the restroom as as in our churches today... She says, I gather that most parents assume that it is impossible for little ones to learn to sit still for an hour and therefore even cruel to expect it. To that I say, rubbish. In the first place, I know it's possible. We learned it. And I know some children today who are learning it. Let no one suggest that the Howard children, that's that's her maiden name, did it because they were phlegmatic The phlegmatic types. I had to look that up too. You know what it means? Unemotional or calm disposition. So she's saying we were not calm kids in our types. Every one of us struggled to control our hereditary bundles of nerves. In the second place, I think it's wrong not to expect it. 
For in addition to being a fundamental lesson in a child's submission to the will of his parents, it is the best place to begin to train mastery over the body. What insight? Here's what she says. To control movement in obedience to parents enables a child to control movement later in obedience to his own will. Folks, it's the responsibility of parents to teach our children to sit and worship and pay attention. It's our responsibility. And the best way I know to prepare your kids for 1030 worship at our church is to start small at home. Doesn't that make sense? Children who learn to sit together in family worship will learn to sit together in corporate worship. What if your child disobeys? There's no what if. There's no what if if your child is going to disobey. Children are still children, folks. But having them in the service, we're not expecting them to be anything else but children, although we're wanting them to be well-behaved children. So as we are training them, it may be necessary to get up out of the service and go make a little trip. Right? I'm fine with that. I'm fine with it. My mom wore the carpet out. For a good span, I think between, between the time I was six to eight at Bowman Baptist Church. Does any of you guys and gals remember the pinch? My old mom could pinch the fire out of me. Bring blood. Man, it hurt. Got my attention though, right? Sure did. There are times, if they are not behaving... That it's good for the glory of God and the neighbor sitting near you in the church that we introduce them to the rod of correction. The Bible says it will drive hell far from them. There is a time for punishment with a rod. No matter what the society says, the Bible says different, right? And I don't think it's always best to say, just go out there in the hallway and sit down. That's what they want. <laughs> right? When my daughter was little, Elena, we were in North Carolina. I was pastoring my first church. It was probably around, probably around 1998. My mom was there. My dad was alive at that time, and they were visiting us. And Elena was on the back row sitting with my mom. Why? Because I said the best place for escape is in a place where you don't have to disrupt the entire church. There's some wisdom here, folks. Let me stop for a moment. Don't bring baby Ajax to the front row if you know baby... Look at him. (laughs) That kid is knocked out. Right? You know why he's sleeping? Because he knows I'm not going to say anything stupid. He trusts me. Right? Right? But look, when you bring in a child and you're training them, get a place where you can escape. Right? Well, I would tell my mom, you know, just sit back there, practical wisdom, put her on the back row. Well, my mom gets on to her and she says, Elena, I'm going to take you out of here and spank you. And my mom said, it's the funniest thing ever. She said, I could hear the wheels turning in her mind. And she's like, go out, spanking. So she said, Grandma, I want to bank it. I want to bank it. Why? Number one, she knew Grandma wouldn't spank her. And number two, she knew she'd get out of there. Right? So practical wisdom. I read this week about churches, and this is neat, and I'm not against this, because we got sections behind Mr. Danny, and over here behind Bruce, and over here behind Mr. Bob, and behind uh, Sandy and Tim, 
where churches build these cubicles. And there's a glass there. And the kids are trained to come in and sit there with their parents to learn how to listen until they're ready to go out into the corporate body. You say, well, preacher, that's, that's just overkill. No, it's not. It's not overkill when we're dealing with the Word of God. We're dealing with the very instruction that they need to hear. So if we can get Tim and some of the guys to work on those sections, and I know we might need them one day. Thank the Lord that the church is growing and people are filling it up. But children are important. I, I wouldn't mind if they had a glass there and, and it, you know, I might see a hand fly. And a whoop, right? <laughs> what? Might see one just going out and get them. Yeah, I don't know. Yeah, that would be chaotic maybe, but I think it's a great idea. So, Paul believed the word of God was authoritative, right? He believed that children were under direct address. They were hearing what was spoken. Thirdly, there is a relationship of the children with believing parents that puts them in a privileged position in the church. Now, why do I say that? Well, Paul is assuming that there is a, ooh, is a relationship. I'm going I'm to go faster. He sees a relationship. Now, watch out for errors. This doesn't mean that your child is saved just because you come to church. Okay? It doesn't mean that there's baptismal regeneration. That's not true at all. Okay, but there is a relationship. Why? Because Romans 9 verse 8 would tell us to keep our minds straight about bloodlines. Why? Because it says it is not the children of the flesh who are the children of God, but the children of the promise are counted as offspring. That means you've got to trust Christ individually. None of you kids are going to get to glory on your mom's coattail. You have to trust Christ as your Lord and Savior. Bloodlines mean nothing in conveying the grace of God, but the promise of God does. Okay, according to Romans 9. Neither are our children godless heathens either. So I'm assuming that maybe some of these are not saved, and yet Paul is saying you need to believe and obey your parents. But there is a perspective on children and being children of parents of believers when we participate in the church. Why is it a privileged position? Because it's the usual place where God will save your soul. And this is very important for us to remember. Do you know that? Weird kind of statement in 1 Corinthians 7, 14 where it says that if the unbelieving spouse does not know the Lord, that the children are still sanctified? Why is it? It's because one family member in that home is a gospel-believing parent. And it puts that child not in a position of being saved, but puts that child in a condition where they're in the orbit of the gospel being preached. Right? That's what this means. So your kids are in a privileged position. Uh, and, and a gospel influence to those kids. Let's expand that to the church. It is an inestimable blessing to be brought up in a Christian home. Isn't it? It's a privilege for children to grow up in a Bible-preaching, gospel-centered church. Because this is often where the Lord of glory will see fit to save children. Right? So, it's important. For kids to be under the gospel. To hear the gospel. Final preliminary observation. Paul is addressing children in general that are believers. Okay. Why do I say that? Because of the connection with be filled with the spirit. So in general I think Paul is addressing kids that are already in Christ. And thus they are called by God to be filled with the spirit. Which you can't be if you're lost. Okay. I see this connection here. Paul is calling children to 
a resulting issue of being saved, which is being filled with the Spirit. So the context would lend us to believe that Paul is addressing, in general, children who are believers. Children, like all people, need to be converted. Other observations. When I just look down and see the word children, I'm like, you know what? They need Jesus. They need to be converted. The Bible teaches that children need to put their faith in Jesus Christ. Here's what I want to remind you of, church family. In Adam, there are no innocent children. In Adam, there are no innocent children. All fall under the guilt and condemnation of Adam's sin. Therefore, it is necessary for children to be converted unto Christ. Children not only need to be saved, hallelujah, children can be saved. Amen? How old do you have to be to be saved? Here's what I believe. Once you know you're a sinner, you're old enough to be saved. Amen? Once you know you're a sinner, children, you need to be saved and you can be saved. God's saving grace of Jesus Christ extends to the old and to the young. God's grace can reach down and deliver a 90-year-old who's physically near death and raise him to eternal life. I've seen him do it. But God can also reach down into a little child's heart and transform him or her by the grace of God. Children are often so young in the church when they trust Christ that they grow up and they can't hardly ever remember a time when they were not saved. Is that a bad thing? No, friends. How often do we pray God save them at an early age? You know why? Because there's some Mr. Bills back there. And there's a lot of you people in this church who know what it was like to be saved at a later age. And you look at your life and you're like, wow, if I would have gotten saved when I was 20, just think of the misery that I would have been, that would have been out of my life. And we pray this, Lord, don't let them go too far down this road of rebellion and wickedness before you resurrect their hearts. And we pray this. I think it's just as much a beautiful testimony of a kid who grows up in the church all of his or her life and they're saved at an early age and they serve Jesus all the days of their life as it is for the rotten, we think, down and out people who are, you know, we, I say it like this. It's just as much of a remarkable testimony for these young kids to be saved as it is for the heroin addict lying in the gutter and a gospel tract blows on his face and he opens his eyes and he reads it and he gets saved. It's just as dramatic for God to save an eight-year-old. It takes just as much grace for God to save one as it does the others because our shape and our condition is all one and the same. We're lost without Christ. So, what a blessing it is to watch kids grow up. I've been here six years. And you just turn around and, and what, three or four years ago when the Lord brought Cindy and Jimmy to us, Sammy was like, and she's growing up. Boy, what a blessing to see kids grow up in church, hearing the word of God. And God begins to visit that heart. Next couple of weeks, we're going to dive into this passage and we'll finish that outline. This sermon is for kiddos. You need to be here. Are y'all listening? If you're a child, you need to hear what the Word of God says. I'm praying that God will work mightily through the fifth commandment and Ephesians 6, 1 through 4. I want to remind you of something. One of the sins that young people grow up and feel most guilty about is that they did not obey their mom and dad. They did not honor their parents. I know this is true because I do counseling. 
I know this is true. That, that kids, you, you're an adult here and you wish today that you would have obeyed your mom and dad. You wish today you would have honored them in the place that God gave them. And one of the marks that you are truly saved of God is that there will be a new delight in your spirit, kids, of obeying and honoring your parents. Are you listening? In other words, if you're truly saved, you will take this teaching seriously. One of the marks that you're genuinely a believer, young people, is that you honor what God has placed over you. And in honoring and obeying your mom and dad, you are obeying and honoring God. And that's the result of being saved by grace through faith. May the sovereign king be pleased to take all of our children and turn them into faithful and loyal followers of Jesus Christ. Shouldn't we pray that? At the end of the day, that should be the first and foremost thing in our minds as Christian parents is that God would take our children and make them lifelong followers of Jesus Christ. Amen? I'm tired. All right, let's pray. God, you're good to us. Lord, we agonize. We agonize over your word and we look at it. We agonize in prayer before you. Lord, we, we see truths and, Lord, we know that our society and culture, we're so far away from what this says in the text. But, Lord, you can do great things. We're just reminded of Ephesians 3, 20 and 21 as we preach this sermon. Now to him who is able to do exceedingly and abundantly above anything we could ever ask or think. According to the power that works in us. Unto him be glory in the church through Christ Jesus, world without end. Amen. Lord, you can do great things. Lord, would you send a revival of obedience among our children. Make them first obedient unto salvation. First act of obedience is to believe the gospel. To be saved. To trust you only for salvation. To repent and believe the gospel. But if we're truly saved, that's just the beginning of a walk of following Jesus. He's Lord. He's Lord of our lives. He's Lord of our obedience and the honor that, that's due our parents. God help us. If there's someone lost today, even children, would you visit them, conceive and call them? In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. stand together and sing this great old hymn. It reminds us to trust and obey the Lord, but in it we can remember kids to trust and obey our moms and dads as well. Amen. Let's sing this together. When we walk with the Lord in the light of His Word, what a glory He sheds on. I think the best thing to do with this kind of sermon is apply it to our lives. Which most of that's going to take place outside of this building. Amen. True for me, true for you. Tonight, we're going to have a special time and a special offering 
Once a year we tried to allocate a, a, an offering to the Great Commission Fund. And Blake will share about that tonight. But folks, that's where some of the most important work we ever do as a church comes from. You know this. What you see out in the commons with the homes built in Guatemala and uh, they're getting ready to go to Vietnam in October, October 1, that's made possible by how you give. So pray about giving a gift, one-time gift, not to your tithes and offerings, but to the Great Commission Fund. So me and David and Phil and uh, uh, Jeff will sing a couple songs tonight. Uh, Blake is going to share a few things about the Great Commission offering. And then we're going to take communion tonight. All right? So look forward to that. Hope you'll come back. God bless you. Amen. See you tonight.